You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to All About Skills. This is a weekly series of programs about the skills that your children and grandchildren will need, skills that you need to get ahead in your career, and those that we all need to function effectively for our constitutional republic to survive. My name is Charlie Jett, and I'm coming to you from our studio high above the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in beautiful downtown Chicago. Now, in the last program, I presented a high school graduation address to communicate the importance of the critical skills to graduating seniors. And this week, I'm going to look forward in a broad sense and discuss the reasons why the critical skills are now important and will be even more important in the future. This is episode number 13, and it's called Brave New World. The world has drastically changed since my days as a high school student, and today's students face challenges that are unimaginable in their future. At the middle of the 20th century, at the end of World War II, the United States was near full employment. Europe, Japan, and China were devastated, and the U.S. had virtually no competition. Whatever the U.S. made would sell, domestically and internationally. As the decades passed, Europe, Japan, and China began to revive economically, and we found ourselves in a newly competitive world. Technological advances brought new products to market, manufacturing processes became more efficient, and many were automated to reduce costs. Healthcare improved, life expectancies increased, and the population soared. Traditional industries began to age, and faced competition from foreign sources whose products, the most visible being automobiles, were of higher quality. What was good for General Motors wasn't necessarily good for America anymore. In the 1980s, concerns over the growing budget deficits led to the passage of the Graham-Rudman Act, which put limits on federal spending and aimed toward balanced budgets. While a noble attempt at budget balancing Graham Rudman eventually failed to produce what was desired. To reduce costs and make the income statements more attractive for investors, manufacturers of all kinds began to outsource manufacturing to foreign, foreign countries, a decision that put pressure on the labor force and unemployment numbers. The financial industry received a boost when in the 1990s, Congress repealed the Glass-Steagall Act and enabled commercial banks to venture into the risky world of investment banking. Largely unregulated at the time, the financial industry boomed. Banks merged, creating megabanks, and financial instruments became more creative, prolific, and riskier. In some cases, even sophisticated investors did not know exactly what they were buying. And the political winds began to change significantly with a trend toward extreme political partisanship, resulting in significant non-compromise and non-deal-making. Gone were the days when President Reagan and House Speaker Tip O'Neill could argue furiously during the day and then, after five o'clock, 
get together, have a drink, play some poker, and cut a deal. Congress became relatively dysfunctional, unable or unwilling to collectively pass legislation to improve the country's infrastructure. The economy was stimulated through military interventions and wars, which contributed significantly to the vast increase in the national debt. The Cold War ended, yes, and reduced the need for Cold War mentality within the Department of Defense. As policemen to the world after World War II, the U.S. intervened in many areas of the world, perhaps some justified and others completely unwise. Interventions, covert and overt, occurred in Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Chile, Grenada, Panama, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then Iraq once more. In contrast to 19th century colonial powers, while the U.S. did intervene on many occasions, at the end of any intervention, the USA did not exact its pound of flesh by making any country a colony under US rule of any kind. In fact, the USA's mortal enemies of World War II, Japan and Germany, became the US staunch allies. However, USA interventions left over 100,000 of our soldiers dead, more than half a million wounded, and counting all the military and non-military deaths, resulting from these interventions, more than 8 million military and civilian deaths in other countries who were the beneficiaries of this intervention. The population of the United States increased from approximately 180 million at the end of World War II to over 300 million today. The productive cap capability of the world's economy and that of the United States increased far beyond that ever witnessed before and two competing segments or classes of people have been increasing while another segment is disappearing. There is a richer segment consisting of those who own and control the means of production and the sources of capital, managers and owners. This segment resists anything such as higher taxes that will, will reduce their accumulation of wealth. Then there is a poorer segment who have virtually nothing to sell but their productive labor and who have little hope of rising. This segment demands an increasing level of redistribution or sharing of wealth in the form of entitlements and relies more and more on borrowing and the accumulation of debt to simply survive. And there's a disappearing segment formerly known as the middle class, or put simply, the segment that gener generally earns more than it spends and frankly buys most of the stuff that's produced. Over the last 30 years, labor productivity rose. Pay remained relatively stagnant, profits increased, and owners amassed vast wealth. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, productivity rose 93% between 1980 and 2013, while pay rose 38%, all inflation adjusted. According to the Center on Budget Priorities and Policies, the widening gap between the rich and the poor is not speculation. It is a fact. In their April 2014 report, they state, and I quote, the years from the end of World War II into the 1970s were one of substantial economic growth and broadly shared prosperity. Incomes grew rapidly and at roughly the same rate up and down the income ladder, roughly doubling in inflation-adjusted terms between the late 1940s and the early 1970s. The income gap between those high up in the income ladder 
and those on the middle and lower rungs, while substantial, did not change much during this period. But beginning in the 1970s, economic growth slowed and the income gap widened. Income growth for households in the middle and lower parts of the distribution slowed sharply, while incomes at the top continued to grow strongly. The concentration of income at the very top of the distribution rose to levels last seen more than 90 years ago during the Roaring Twenties. Regarding wealth, the value of a household's property and financial assets, minus the value of its debts, is much more highly concentrated than income. The best data available until recently did not show a dramatic increase in wealth concentration at the very top, unlike the income data. But new research suggests that the percentage of wealth held by the very wealthiest also has risen sharply over the last three decades. As the population of those who continue to struggle financially and eventually give up hope of the American dream increases, there will become a point where a conflict will arise, resulting perhaps in an unforeseen change in the structure of our government to something less desirable, favoring one group over another. What has happened in this country is a topic that has to be approached gingerly because it is much like what Karl Marx predicted about capitalism over a century and a half ago. His remedy, however, is an unworkable system that has been tried and failed. The mere mention of Marx can be toxic, but unfortunately his predictions appear to be on target. Left unaddressed, the problem will lead to consequences that could spin out of control, but sadly, a Congress paralyzed by extreme partisanship appears to leave little hope for any sort of proactive solution. The spread of information and the speed by which it has spread has been nothing short of breathtaking since World War II. People relied on newspapers, magazines, and radio during those years, but now have instantaneous access to people all over the world through social media like Facebook and Twitter. There are hundreds of radio and TV talk shows, most of which are partisan in nature. With a click of the mouse, individual, individuals can spread information worldwide, and talk show hosts can make articulate arguments on whatever issue they desire, starting from their own political leanings, making their arguments, and ignoring facts and relevant information that might not agree with their political leanings. In a sense, they manipulate P to their own advantage and logically conclude Q, which may be either true or just plain nonsense. The manipulation of P, or the hypothesis, is widely used to conjure up reasons to go to war. There wasn't any real Gulf of Ton Tonkin incident that gave us reason to vastly increase our military excursion into Vietnam, nor were there any weapons of mass destruction that gave us just cause to invade Iraq the second time. Whether these manipulation of the hypothesis, or P, were intentional is open to debate. Now a majority of people in this country believe that neither effort was worth the cost. In order to maintain a healthy constitutional republic, voters need to have information in order to make rational choices among different issues or among different candidates for any office. Manipulation of P by any political group, right or left wing, can sway an uninformed electorate to make foolish choices. The remedy for this is to ensure we have an educated electorate, as suggested by Thomas Jefferson, 
that is able to discern truth from fiction in order to draw valid conclusions about their political choices. The information and analytical skills discussed in previous programs become paramount in the health of a constitutional republic. Religion and its effect on the world is currently a hot topic, and it's not the purpose of this discussion to take a stance, pro or con, about any type of religion. However, religion does exist, it is a fact, and it currently is having an effect in the world, for good and for bad. The majority of religious people use their religion as a moral and ethical guide in life, and in some religions to give hope about life after death. But there are religious fanatics who go far beyond practicing their religion by themselves. They spread violence. The 19 young men who flew planes into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon did not do so because of economics. They did so because of religion, to kill infidels. The Christian religion has not been immune from spreading violence in the distant past, but even the most radical these days do not endorse violence, except in extreme cases. We can see all around us the effect of global warming, the melting of the glaciers, the increase in violent weather, and in the rising of sea levels. There is open debate regarding the cause of these phenomena, whether triggered by industrial man or just a geological cycle in the history of the Earth. The debate goes on as the glaciers continue to melt and ice continues to break away from Antarctica and from Greenland. Our children will feel the effects regardless of which side of this debate is correct. So how does a young person these days face the future in this brave new world. Carefully, I must say, and with a heavy dose of critical thinking. The next 50 years will not be like the past 50 years by any stretch of the imagination. A young person must face the following facts about today's world. The world has limited resources. The world's population is increasing and people are living longer. They will need someone to care for them. The United States has a mountain of debt. Technology is advancing at a rapid pace. Access to information is becoming easier, but more difficult to manage. Religion does exist and does have an effect on the world. Democratic governments require debate and compromise by intelligent people. The gap between the rich and the poor is widening, and competition for well-paying jobs is on the rise. It is every parent's hope that their children will grow up and prosper in a comparable, if not better, lifestyle than they experienced as children. For those of us who were born during or before the baby boom, that was almost a certainty. Nowadays, I'm not so sure. There is an estimate that approximately 6 million young people in this country, from the ages of 16 to 21, have dropped out of school, are unemployed, and have virtually given up hope. There are approximately one million children dropping out of school every year. That's one in every 29 seconds, or 7,000 per day. Those young people face lives of low income, unemployment, poor health, living on public assistance, and being single parents. These trends in our country are not healthy or conducive to growing a population of critical thinking and educated citizens who want to maintain a democratic way of life. 
The problem is serious. It's serious. If we do nothing, the future is not bright. It is not enough to depend on or wait for government to solve this problem and make these problems just go away. We have to do it ourselves. The critical skills are essential for an individual to manage his and her own career in the 21st century, but they are also are essential for us to maintain a constitutional republic and a democratic way of life. This means as students, as parents, as teachers, as career-minded individuals, and as citizens, we need to have the ability to sort out truth from fiction, to think critically about the problems that face us, to communicate clearly with others our concerns and ideas, to apply technology to solve our most pressing problems, and to work together as a team, and to focus on the most important priorities. If you're a teacher, do what you can to incorporate the critical skills into what you teach. As a business executive, focus on your developmental programs, not only on the elements of your business or the bottom line, but the critical skills as well. As a student, understand that the critical skills will be essential for your success, not only through school, but in your career and as a citizen as well. And as a parent or grandparent, encourage your children or grandchildren to learn and practice the critical skills, not only at home, but in school as well. Understand that if you are a career-minded individual and want to get ahead in the corporate world, you will need the critical skills to do so. Harken back to the publication of A Nation at Risk and ask yourself what you can do to, the, to improve the quality of education in this country. Learn about the Common Core Standards and what they are intended to accomplish. Finally, the time for talking about the critical skills is simply over. Now is the time to actually do something about it. We need the critical skills for our nation and for our constitutional republic to survive. Well, that was a look toward the future, stressing the continued importance of the critical skills, a message that I think we all need. Now, in episode number 14 next week, We'll look at the critical skills from the perspective of parents. In the meantime, give some thought to these critical skills. Again, they are communications, production, information, analysis, technology, interpersonal, time management, and continuous education. My name is Charlie Jett, and I thank you all for joining me as we continue our journey that is all about skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.